Coming up next, the booking reads The Prince of Paradox himself. Give me a G. G. Give me a K. K. Give me a Chesterton. Chesterton. J.K. Chesterton. My name is Nathan Alberson. I am still... Let's see, this would be episode... My Antonia. Or Antonia. Or however you want to say it. Where did we land on that? We had some some of our Twitter friends jump into the mix. Uh, what did they decide for us, Jake? Were they on your side with your Antonia? They said, say Anthony, but with a hard T and an uh. Antonia. Uh, so let's, Antonia. Just, let's just tell Brandon Antonia. to do... Antonia. Antony. Antonia. 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 That's not as ugly as Antonia or whatever. Antonia? Is <laughs> what were you saying? You're right. It's not as. That's what I was saying, Antonia. Antonia, yeah. Wasn't a big fan of that. May well be the right way, but just wasn't a big fan of how that sounded. Uh, Antonia. Antonia. My. So, Antonia. My Antonia. I like that. My Antonia. My Antonia. Anyway, welcome to the bookening. Why did, how, why, why did we get off on that? I have no idea. Antonia. Antonia. Why did we get off on that? I was going somewhere with that, and it was all going to tie together. Antonia. Antonia. My Antonia. My Antonia. 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 Oh, well, welcome to the booking, everyone. I am your humble and obedient host, Nathan Alberson, A-L-B-E-R-S-O-N-O-T. And I'm joined by two of my best friends in the whole wide world. And if you're one of my other friends that's listening and is breaking your heart because I'm saying that they're my two best friends, then uh, yeah. Tough. You should have been nicer to me. Brennan and Jake have supplanted you. And the supplanter himself over there, one of the two supplanters, it's Brandon Chastain. Hey, Nathan. He has, he's a man of many titles. He works on titles. He's literally a man of yeah, many I, titles. I work on titles <laughs> he, for a living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ain't that something. Ain't that something. The man of titles. A man of titles. But there are a few titles that we know him by on the bookening. And I'm going to let Jake Menzel tell you what those titles are. Well, he was once known as the PhD ABD. No, oh, back in the the bad old days, yeah. Most recently, he is the scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right. And I can't remember anything else. I think he's had other titles. What was yeah, he? Yeah, I've had some others. Got some horror Halloween episodes coming up. I think he may well have a spooky. I don't know. There's know. one. Yeah. Sea biscuit. I'm a son of a sea. You're biscuit. a son of a sea biscuit. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Ah, there, there, was, he is. there was something else. The old too. son of a sea biscuit. I'm a guy. If you know, if you knew me in real life, you'd know I like to assign titles to people. I like to give people the nicknames. They almost. A hundred percent of the time, don't appreciate the nicknames that I give to them. People seem to like to be able to choose their own names, but I like to give people names. Yeah, there and should be a section on whoever's maintaining our Wikipedia site. There really should. If you could, if you could update the Bookings Wiki to uh, include that, the second supplanter of friendship, the one that's more important than any of my other friends, except for Brandon Chastain. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, <laughs> And he also goes, he's also a man of many titles, even if he doesn't work in the title business. He works in the soul-saving business. He's a pastor. The pastor, in fact, who's a master of what you may ask? Well, a lot of things, actually. Master of podcasting, I'd say. Hosts any number of podcasts or co-hosts them with yours truly. He's a master of, what else is Jacob master of, Brandon? Putting microphones back together. Master of putting microphones. Check out behind the paywall for some... In- it's, more like, it's, it's kind of like a tutorial, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you've yeah. ever wondered how to be angry at your microphone with dignity, all you have to do <laughs> is watch Jake Menzel. But on this show, we know him best, perhaps, as the master who's a... Pa- Boy. As a pastor who's a master of reading, we also know him as Commander Daddy. We also know him as lots of other things. And uh, how are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing well. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing all right. I'm ready to dive right in with no dillying nor dallying into the Prince of Paradox himself, G.K. Chesterton. Gilbert keep, Keith Chesterton. I keep thinking you're going to say the Prince of Persia. <laughs> the Prince of Persia himself. We're actually just going to watch The Prince of Persia starring Jake Gyllenhaal. 
an actor that has gone on to better things since then. Yeah. People like that Jake Dillendahl. I like that Jake Dillendahl. He's good in Nightcrawler. He was good in, uh, oh, that movie that I hated. I thought it was a dumb movie, but he was pretty good in it. That one with Hugh Ackman. Was it new? Yeah, it's been the last couple of years. Wasn't a big fan. Prisoner? Yeah, 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 yeah. Prisoner. He was also in Okja. What's Okja? It's the new um, movie on Netflix. Oh, with the girl that rides the computer-generated seal yeah, monster yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie. He's in that. And <laughs> he plays go. a very fascinating character, I suppose. Uh, did, 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 did you do a boxer movie? Boxing movie? Yeah, he was in, uh, I didn't South, see that, Southpaw but Southpaw or, or something yeah. like that, yeah. He kind of reinvented himself as a tough guy. Who would have thought? He was like, when to- when they were talking about Tobey Maguire maybe dropping out of Spider-Man, Jake Gyllenhaal was one of the names that he was bandied around to play those kinds of nerdy characters, but... <laughs> He's, he's become a tough guy, and we wish him well. Jake Gyllenhaal, if you're listening, as I assume you do, yeah. we wish you well. Anyway, I said no dillying, no dallying. We're getting right to it today, folks, after donor shout-outs, of course. Brandon, you ready for some shout-outs? <clears throat> yeah. All right, let's shout him out to... Let's mix it up. Let's shout it out to Mr. X. Actually, Mr. X has made a special request. He'd like to go by for Professor X. Professor X. Yes. Professor X. There we go. You're welcome, Professor X. <laughs> feel weird I calling don't think you professor. get to decide what you're called, but whatever. I think we actually... We specifically we said, specifically that, said you that, could. that you could. Oh, okay. Professor yeah. X, hey. <laughs> I don't... Thanks, I don't. <laughs> thanks for the money, Professor X. You're great, Professor X. <laughs> a very mysterious guy, a, a man that is... Uh, or a woman, who can say, who has specifically requested that we not reveal their identity. They're maybe ashamed to be associate. No, no, they're not. They have their own reasons. Who else? How about some uh, Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds? Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. How about some John and Jill, the lovebirds? John and Jill, the lovebirds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who else we got? Robert Um, and Ron, the lovebirds. Yeah, you better look. Jake's looking it up for us, folks. Um, Robert and Ron. Yeah, we got Rhonda and Robert, the Rhonda and Robert. The Lovebirds. Rhonda and Robert, the Lovebirds. Brennan, would you like to give them a special message? They actually are the ones that done created you. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for doing that. Thanks for doing that. (laughs) I'd like to thank Rhonda and Robert uh, for creating Brandon. I'm very happy that they did it. I think they did the world a great service when they created, brought Brandon into it. The world's a better place. We have had an addition. We've had an addition? That's what I was expecting. All right. And what's the addition? Nathan. 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 Nathan? <laughs> Not me. Different Nathan? Nathan! Different Nathan. He's supporting us at the $10 level. $10 oh, is all you need to get a shout out here at the Booking. Yeah, it's not It's not expensive, folks, for the price of two uh, $5 footlongs made by the great sandwich artists at Subway. You can get a shout out. Well, thank you, Nathan. Not me, Nathan. We really appreciate your support, and uh, your money is well spent, I think. I feel like I know I'm forgetting at least one. Uh, you forgot Beth, I think. Oh, Beth. Beth! Beth! So we've got Beth, Eric and Catherine, Professor X, mm-hmm. John and Jill, Nathan, and Robert and Rhonda. That's and it. They got them all shout outs. We got it. Folks, we appreciate your support. Couldn't do it without you. So thank you very much. Yeah, let's talk about, so today's episode is a little bit of an emergency episode. We decided that we were going to do an episode on old Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Isn't that right, fellas? Yeah, that's right. That's why we're here. <laughs> hey, we should go ahead and apologize, by the way, to Nathan, because we've already recorded October and he's not in it. That's true. Nathan, I'm sorry we did not bring you up in, in the October episodes, which we have already recorded. You're not in there. But I'll go ahead and give you a cool Halloween nickname just for the ho- October episodes. Does he mind us saying his last name, you think? I don't know. We haven't done it so far. That's true. It's easier to call him. Be- Can you do instead? <laughs> okay. The master of nicknames. The master of nicknames. You guys got to help me with this. All right, we're gonna we gotta, Nathan. We're gonna get, we can't use your last name, although there's an obvious Halloween nickname for that. I think. Actually, I'll just give the Halloween nickname for his last name. That's probably okay, right? Maybe. Sure. Your Halloween nickname, which I shall now give you, is Witch Sins. Nobody will figure out what his real name is, right? Nah. Nah. I think that's fine. Which sense? All right. Which sense? Thanks, which sense? All right, let's talk about the old uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, the Prince of Paradox himself. What's that sound? It's a very paradoxical sound of... Little flags coming out of the guns. <laughs> There's little flags coming out of the guns. That's right. So he's right there. He's a contextual Texan. He's from Texas. He's going to provide us some much-needed context on the entire life and oeuvre of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. So well, Now that you put it like that... <laughs> 
the entire life and oeuvre the of, entire life and oeuvre of Chesterton of Chesterton let me get this microphone closer to me so Brandon <sighs> tell me who was Gilbert Keith Chesterton who was Gilbert Keith Chesterton that is something that's the, a good question the to question ask. of the hour that's the question of the hour I think a good place to start would be with what Chesterton.org says about him. All right, Chesterton. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, which was his first thing to start with, is that was his full name, was Gilbert Keith. He usually goes by GK as a shortening of that, but Gilbert Keith Chesterton cannot be summed up in one sentence. Oh, no. Nor in one paragraph. Oh, no. In fact, in spite of the fine biographies that have been written of him, he has never been captured between the covers (laughs) of one book. Oh, no. Which, I mean, if you want to be very literal about things, I don't think any author has ever been captured between the covers of one book, except for maybe large, very large book. And it would have been a very large book because Gilbert Keith Chesterton was a large man. He was like six foot four and weighed some amount of stones, which I guess, and that's the way the Brits measure their weight, which was, I think it was somewhere around 300 pounds. He's yep, a big guy. Big fat guy. Fun fact. In fact, he was so large... Sounds like a fat joke. How large was he? <laughs> he was so large that when he died, they had to lower his casket through the window because they couldn't get it down the stairs. Oh, no. That's not <laughs> funny at all. That's how large he was. <laughs> Let's be serious. <laughs> well, then we can, now that we have that out of the way, he actually can be summed up in a various amount of sentences. Okay. We can start with his... <laughs> we can start with... defying Chesterton.org. <laughs> You're saying wrong, Chesterton.org. I mean, it depends on what you mean by summed up. But they hadn't uh, counted on Brandon Chasteen. He was born and he died, so you can do some form of summary in between <laughs> those never, two about sums it things. <laughs> um, he was born in 1874, died in 1936. So for those who listen to the bookening, this puts him into a period of time that we've read before. Kipling, some of the other authors we would have seen would have started writing right at the end of his career. Hemingway... Steinbeck. And so he was kind of at this transitional period of literary history. In fact, I think just 10 years later, Lewis would be born. And so, right? He was 1885 or was that 1890s? 10 years after... When was Lewis born? Lewis was born... He was still in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. I remember him being in the 1800s from our... Um... Which that just made me realize that he was a... F- we can pause while you look that up real fast. Lewis was born in 1898. 1898. So quite a bit after that then. So... Some of his contemporaries also would have been George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde. So he got to see the end of the Victorian age and also the beginning of the modernist period. And there are a lot of attributes about his writing that mirror that transition, as we saw in Kipling. You have him come to flower right in the 19, early 1900s, 19, the teens. And then as you get to World War One, he kind of fades out of importance. And especially as you get to World War Two, the transition into World War Two, very much like Kipling. And a lot of his ideas would have been looked at as outdated. A lot of his writing style would have been seen as outdated at that point, too. He was born. Do we know what his parents did? I actually have never read that, I don't think. Yeah, I, was just, I guess it's an interesting fact. I don't know a whole lot about what his childhood was. I think he had a fairly normal... I mean, he did have a fairly normal childhood. Um, he was educated at St. Paul's. He never actually formally went to college, though he did go to art school at the Slade School of Art. And he took some, uh, some literature classes and stuff at the University of London, but he never graduated, didn't have an official degree. When... You look at a site like Chesterton.org, just to go back to this, they said that he never went to college. He did actually kind of go to college. But there's, and this will be something that we touch on later, there's a tendency with G.K. Chesterton to make him, make his myth larger than he actually was. Mm-hmm. He was just a person. Right. But, so they wanted, it seems like they're try, you know, trying to do this thing where... Never formally educated, yeah. just a natural genius. Just a, just a natural yeah, genius. A prodigy. Just a guy, he walked right off the streets and here he was. He was G.K. Chesterton, brilliant wit, master of paradox, his style just sparkling and without any sort of training. Yeah, there's a story of him uh, writing his book on um, St. Francis. And the story is that there's there's all kinds of stories like this, and I'm sure many of them are apocryphal. The story is that he sent his secretary out to get 14 of the best books on St. Francis. She bought them in. He cracked one of them and leafed through it a little bit. And then he sat down and wrote his amazing book on St. Francis of Assisi without touching any of the other books because that's the kind of genius he was and that's those are the kinds of stories you hear about gk chesterton and he did have a brilliant mind absolutely another story i've heard and i don't know if it's true or not was that towards the end of his life he was able to recall 
tens of thousands of the plots of books that he had read. And he just had an amazing... How did um, you verify that? Say what? It's taken a long time to verify tens of thousands of plots. Someone sat down with him in a bar. Yeah, how would you pints, verify that? Had him verify 10,000 stories. That's <laughs> how gullible I am. I'm just like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, that sounds um, <laughs> I have a fun story about G.K. Chesterton. One time, George Bernard Shaw said... If I were as fat as you, I would hang myself. <laughs> to which Chesterton retorted, if I were to hang myself, I would use you as the rope. That's funny. They had a lot of fun zingers like that. Another one was along the lines of Chesterton told Bernard Shaw that to look at you, you would think that there were a famine in England. And then Shaw said, to look at you, you, you would think, think that you caused it. it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, so then just back up a bit. He had a childhood. We think it was fine and happy. His parents were probably fine. I think in his autobiography, if people really care, they can go and read his autobiography. It's available online. Almost all of his works are now, um, in the common, what do they call it? Common domain. The common domain. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? The common domain? Yeah. Public. The public 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 domain. domain. (laughs) I was really convinced I had it right there. Yeah. His parents were Unitarians, not practicing, but just kind of Unitarian-ish. He did not necessarily grow up in the faith, although he was always very intrigued by it and by the occult and by mystical kind of stuff. He had a brother, Cecil, an older brother, Mm -hmm. who he was fairly close to. The important thing is to know that his childhood was fairly happy and that it was a childhood he could look back on fondly later in life. And that's important because a lot of his theories on localism, on the value of imagination and poetry and all this comes from the fact that he had a childhood where he could wander out into nature, see the roads open in front of him, see the trees and the birds and all that, and it shaped his thoughts and his feelings about the world, and especially about England. Mm -hmm. He also was a very observant child, and... This led to his proclivity with art. He was a great artist. And in fact, that's what he wanted to do before he ever became a writer, is he wanted to be an illustrator. And so he went to the Slade School of Art and eventually, I believe, dropped out and started doing some journalistic writing. Um, Again, Chesterton.org claims that it was because people were begging him to do it. They were like asking him to do this art criticism. Other places that are a little more even killed about it all say that... Reputable... Yeah. Perhaps. <laughs> Are you guys calling into question the <laughs> veracity of Chesterton.org? He needed money, and so he started writing some articles. And he was in the tradition of guys like that we haven't read yet, but people like um, oh, Still and Addison. We... I don't. We haven't really read anything from the 1700s yet. Have we? No, we'll get around to it. Some. We'll get to it sometimes. Yeah. But there was a flowering of wit and prose style in the 1700s that came about with these little periodicals that were produced in little magazines of political thoughts, or they would be on things that were happening, almost like op-ed pieces in newspapers today, or something that would be much closer to what people would be familiar with, maybe, would be The New Yorker. And so he started writing for things like this. And his prose was popular. His wit was popular. It was immediately obvious that this guy had the ability to observe and notice things in a powerful way, in a, in a way that struck home because of his amazingly perceptive mind, but also because of his wit. He was very funny. And so he eventually landed some weekly columns that he would do, and some of these he held for 30 years until he died. And that's the thing to really know about Chesterton is even even though we have these books that he have been handed down to us, like, what was it? The, the Not The World We Made. But. <laughs> what's Wrong With what's The What's Wrong With The World? Though the World We Made is a great podcast that everybody should listen to. That's true. What's Wrong With The World and um, Orthodoxy and these other things, a lot of those actually came out of this lively public f- position that he had. Because of this position that he would have, he would enter into all these debates that were happening at the time. And as I mentioned earlier, this was a transitional period. And so you had a lot of debates about the old conservative ways versus kind of the new liberal ways. And so Bernard Shaw, who was one of his fierce enemies, and Oscar Wilde, kind of represented these new liberal tendencies either towards socialism or towards a free a, a freer society, a libertine society, or art for art's sake. And he was caught in those debates, and sometimes they led him into some unfortunate places. I think he, well, he was married, never had any children, as I don't think. No. Even though he seemed like the perfect guy to have had children. And then he died in 19, the late 1930s. 
anybody want to add anything about his biography? Um, I think we'll touch on it some more. I guess we should mention just for somebody who, in case there's somebody listening who really just doesn't know what G.K. Chesterton is, I think after he became a popular journalist, he became a, a Christian, right? Yeah, that actually is a very important part of his biography. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> he was actually an Anglican for a while, but in the early 1920s, he became a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And... As we start talking, what we're going to do next is look at his ideas, the, the kind of the major thoughts that he had, because that helps you really understand Chesterton. You see that tendency in his thinking. He was very much focused on the small and the local, mm-hmm. and he was very much focused on imagination and poetry. And so that led him eventually into the Catholic Church, and also into some very, like I said, unfortunate ideas. And just some weird ones, like uh, what's the name of his... He wasn't a socialist, nor was he a capitalist. He was a something weird that, like, dis- distributionist? Is that is that what it was called? Like, you can read these weird essays where he thinks that, like, every man should be given private property. It's all about property. A guy's got to have his own property, I think. I never really have bothered to understand it, but he's got some... I haven't either. Distributionism, I think, is what it's yeah. called, and... It's a thing, and it's actually pretty boring. Some of his more boring stuff to read about, I would say. But you can certainly find plenty of ink that he spilled on it. He did have some strange thoughts. I guess the trajectory of his life wasn't that unusual. He, it's similar to C.S. Lewis and also similar to T.S. Eliot and some of these other thinkers at the time who, because of their more conservative views on philosophy and literature and stuff, led them into a more conservative way of thinking, which in Chesterton's case led him to the Catholic Church. Right. T.S. Eliot's case led him to Anglic- the Anglican Church. C.S. Lewis the same, even though his became very weird with its universalism. Mm-hmm. So I guess just another few side things. He didn't just write journalism. He was a prolific poet and also an even more prolific fiction writer. His first work of fiction was The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which is a strange little story where it's it starts out with an introduction like I said, that positions it in one of these debates he was having with Shaw at the time, because he was always having debates with Shaw. And it starts out with him making this argument clear that he was having with Shaw, and then moves into this story about a future in England where they just choose their kings at random, and that person has to serve for like a year as the king of England. (laughs) And this particular time, they got this king who was kind of a madman, and he decided to make all of England and be a medieval kingdom again. And then it follows that out. I've not read that one. I I mentioned that one because that's where you see these thoughts that would become dominant thoughts in his life for the first time, pretty clearly in his fiction. And we'll get to that in a minute. The other thing he was famous for writing, and this goes back to the Agatha Christie podcasts, he's famous for creating Father Brown. And that might be what most people actually know him for who have any clue who Chesterton is beyond just his thinking. I think the two things people remember Chesterton most for would be orthodoxy. The book. The the book, orthodoxy, and then the Father Brown mysteries. Available now on Netflix. Father Father Brown? Brown? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't even know they were. BBC, pretty sure. Are they pretty good? I don't know. I haven't watched them. But they're there. Okay. (laughs) My wife really likes detective fiction, and Father Brown is some of her least favorite. (laughs) So... I kind of feel the same. Not a big Father Brown fan. Certainly tried. Um, But maybe he's better when the BBC gets their hands on him, because that often happens. Well, then to understand who Chesterton is, I think you have to wrestle with his larger ideas, kind of the predominant ideas that he had in his life. The first was this fierce, what he would have called like a fierce parochialism. And what that means is a fierce loyalty to what is local. Going back to the Napoleon of Notting Hill, his overarching theme there is that every man should just be committed to their country. You should, you used the word earlier, outside. It was jingoism. Mm -hmm. You should love your country so much that you're willing to die for your country, but also then respect the man who's willing to die for his. So at the beginning of the Napoleon of Notting Hill, there's this guy who comes in. He's like a Spaniard and he's dying, but he's wearing the colors of Spain. And that's just really unusual at the time, but it sparks this guy's imagination. And so he thought that you should be fiercely committed to the local because he saw this tendency in guys like Kipling. In fact, a famous he has a famous essay on Kipling where he talks about this very idea towards the cosmopolitan, that is the man of the world. And if the man of the in his argument, I think and I think we talked about it in the Kipling I think episode, so, yeah. is that the man of the world is so committed to everything that he can't, he's pretty much committed to nothing. He has no real allegiance, yeah. yeah. He's just floating. Um, that's the first thing that he was fiercely committed to. The other thing was 
the um, beauty of imagination and poetry and not like Barney imagination and poetry, <laughs> but sometimes what even seems almost a mystical experience through imagination and the poetic, which brings him into a troubled relationship with philosophers. I've had a lot of philosophers who don't like Chesterton because of this reason. You actually talked to philosoph- people in yes, the field I of philosophy? Yes, I have talked to people. And they are troubled of, by Chesterton? Yes. That's fascinating. Particularly in orthodoxy. Hmm. I think they just think that he tends, and I agree, he tends to favor poetry over just hard and fast reason. He'd probably be the first to admit it. In fact, he yeah. does in orthodoxy, doesn't he say, like, I'm trying to give you a well, series or- of mental pictures to help you understand. Well, yeah, when he argues that the pure rationalist is the least sane person on the planet. He's leaning so hard against modernism that right. yeah, he may end up in places pushing into postmodernism. Well, and that's that's yeah. one important thing to know with him is the way he would argue and the way he would think was always through paradox and also through hyperbole. Mm-hmm. And so everything for him was extremes. And so sometimes you have to back up and think, okay, what's he really saying? And that would actually lead to kind of his sunsetting later in after modernism really hit. Because as we've seen with modernism, with Hemingway especially, you get understatement as prized, as opposed to this hyperbolic wit. And so guys like Oscar Wilde, who was dead by then, but then also guys like Chesterton and guys like Bernard Shaw, who really were theatrical with their language, they quickly fell out of favor. They were either seen as you know, the old conservative way, or like Kipling, they were seen as just hacks later in their life. I think it's true to say that Chesterton's really never, there's a certain community that we're a part of, actually, that really likes Chesterton, and he's had something of a resurgence. But popularly, I don't think he's, do people know who he is? Like, would your average student at IU no. know no, who Chesterton is? They might know Shaw because they might know My Fair Lady. Right. But that, it's like that whole crowd. H.G. Wells was, was real big. Like, G.K. Chesterton takes H.G. Wells really serious. Now we know him as the guy that wrote War of the Worlds. But G.K. Chesterton is always treating H.G. Uh, Wells like he's a true opponent. So I don't know. That's I don't know what my point is. It's, it's just an in- interesting that this whole sort of Edwardian world has just kind of disappeared from our consciousness in some yeah. ways. And a lot of it has to do with modernism and the introduction of irony and especially postmodernism, which we haven't done postmodernism yet. We're going to get there very soon, though, like in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll get to have a whole context on postmodernism. Yay. Yay. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, postmodernism has killed that with our love of irony, our love of not taking the world seriously at all. And for every everything... Chesterton never did. He took very seriously. And that's what he admired in Shaw and these other guys is they took it very seriously too. And for him, what he was fighting against was this tendency with Shaw and with H.G. Wells to think that science or to think that politics, to think that these things were going to save the world. Man with his reason or man with his other capacities outside of God could ever correct the world. And he fought hard against that. And sometimes he was very hyperbolic with it. And he pushed towards things that... Um, would seem paradoxical for a reason, because he wanted to destabilize. He wanted to make you rethink your ability to understand and grasp the world just with your own powers of reason. And so then in orthodoxy, he comes up with, like like you said, the madman is the rationalist who's just going around in a circle thinking that he can explain everything without ever looking up at the moon and at the stars and looking up and wonder at it. He gives the example of a man who thinks that everyone's in a conspiracy against him. Yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. you can't actually disprove that logically because, of course, if they say they're not, that's exactly, that's exactly what they would what, they say, yeah. say. And so it's a closed loop. Yeah. It's a closed l- rational <clears throat> loop. And you can't fight it with reason. You have to fight it by saying, dude, what about, you know, the sunshine and the grass and, yeah. you know, friends? And yes, your theory actually does explain everything, but it explains it in such a small, precise way. You need to not be a rationalist, but actually accept that there's a bigger, broader world that's bigger and broader than you and perhaps not perfectly rational. Yep. But whatever it is, certainly not centered around you. Right. <laughs> yeah, not narcissistic. You're not so important after right. all. Yeah, there's something beyond you. That's what he was terrified of with the new tendencies with Shaw and with H.G. Wells, and obviously he wasn't so far off. I mean, look at how we've gone. Well, Shaw and so. H.G. Wells, people might not know them that well because I think most people probably do know H.G. Wells primarily because he wrote The War of the Worlds and Shaw maybe because he was the inspiration for Pygmalion or he wrote Pygmalion, which was the inspiration for My Fair Lady. But those guys were virulent 
socialists, atheists. I mean, they were actually not just in some subconscious way tearing down the pillars of the fa- the civilization that Chesterton loved. They actually would be the first to admit we are yeah, they, setting out to tear down the pillars of the oh, civilization. Yeah. They were public intellectuals. They were very direct about what they were doing, and then they you know they wrote it into their into their art. Mm-hmm as essentially as propaganda like they had goals yeah 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 and they were in many ways they were the front runners of the modernism that was coming even though when you get to modernism they would all disavow those guys right because they had a better way and so then you got truly wicked people like Bertolt Brecht and these German new artists who you know in some ways postmodernism I'd say is much more foggy and indirect imagine that like shaw and hg wells it's interesting when you read the stories about chester and i'm sure some of it's exaggerated and apocryphal but it seems like he was actually friends with shaw he was actually friends with wells mm-hmm. they would have these big debates they would yell and scream at each other and then they'd go get a beer i mean it's like this ideal that everybody on twitter wishes we could go back to you know every every christian intellectual i think would love to you know be able to debate an atheist or, or debate the great intellects of the other side and and kind of just all you know, have our fight and 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 do it in a real manful way, and then and then um, go but, to the pub. But that's not really the way it usually works. You know, it's a nice ideal, and I'm not sure how much of it, that ideal actually was true, and how much of it's just made up, legendary. Probably some of it is legendary, but some of it's got to be true because we know it was. Yeah, I mean, I think you can find real stories of you know these little witty exchanges between well, Shaw and. Well, what's nice about Shaw and Chesterton is they were both so prolific, and they were also both so just straightforward in what they would say that they both say really horrible things about one another, but then also speak favorably of one another. Right. So we know that there was some of that going on. So there's it's not even up for debate. It's just what was happening. Yeah, Chesterton will always say. Mr. Shaw is a genius, and his genius has driven him mad. And then, and so obviously that would bring some tension, and it wouldn't always be roses between them. But there was some manliness to their debate, I think, that we've lost, especially after the onset of postmodernism. We're all so um, effeminate in the way mm-hmm. that we talk to one another that they wouldn't pull their punches, and for that, they would always know what to expect. That's a nice thought. It's a nice thought that you could go to battle and fire a gun at someone because it's your job to defend your country. But then Christmas Day comes and the two sides get together and they have Christmas because everybody loves Christmas. And then the next day you go back to lobbing grenades at each other. It's nice to think that you could do that in an intellectual sense, that you could have an enemy and that your enemy could be a real enemy and you could have these bloody manful battles and then you could... uh, be like, okay, let's get a beer. But uh, I don't know. Certainly not the way things are done on Twitter. No, yeah, you never know what to expect. They might stab you in the back while they're smiling at you. Who knows what they're going to do? Right. And that just makes everything nasty. And so they took very they took things very seriously, but it was also a changing world. And I think that's really what I'm trying to get across is that Chesterton's big ideas, the thoughts that he was most committed to came out of that fact. I really want to stress that he was committed to these things, that they came out of real debates, real manful debates that he was a part of, not our sissy ways that we have today in the academic world, because there's something that a lot of people only remember Chesterton for, especially in the academic circles. They'll say things like, there's a really wonderful New Yorker article that's very helpful, but if you've never read Chesterton before, it gives you a perfect overview of his life. But of course, the last point they make, the whole thing builds up to the fact that he was an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing that you see the, with a lot of the thinkers, especially the ones that, like I said, went the direction that Chesterton went at the time. So you have T.S. Eliot and you have Chesterton, and both of them have books and upon books upon book upon book about how anti-Semitic they are. And unfortunately, those books are largely based on real things that these guys said, real horrible things that these guys said, and real positions that they held. You can see with Chesterton's thought, the parochialism, the smallness to the local, that actually kind of sounds like what the liberals are after today. Right. But that sort of thing can lead you that direction. It doesn't mean that that's the right and good, but I mean, this is hard territory. It's like debating with someone who's a Southern sympathizer. You know, there are really good things about the South. Robert E. Lee was actually a good man, but slavery was still horrible. Chesterton had all of these thoughts, and yeah, they did lead him to real anti-Semitic. People don't know what anti-Semitic means. It's hatred of Jews. Of Jewish people. (laughs) I'm very confused about whether you're allowed to say Jews anymore, but...
So it sounds to me, Brandon, like you're not trying to do with what I'm going to guess Chesterton.org does, which is to say that Chesterton was, in fact, not a racist. Yeah, you can make the... You can go down the really stupid path of trying to deny that these guys said bad things and deny that they were humans who had weaknesses and real sins. I mean, so... I'll come out and I'll say it. I think Robert E. Lee was a good man. But Robert E. Lee fought for slavery, and that was horrible. Right. <laughs> so so G.K. Chesterton was a f- genius, and he had wonderful ideas and thoughts that people needed to hear, still need to hear. And there was a lot that he was, was fighting, and virtuous yeah, about him. He was fighting real vigorous manly fights against things that really needed to have real vigorous manly fights fought against them. And then he sinned, publicly sinned, said horrible things. You can't just throw the guy out altogether because that happened. Nobody, no public figure who's ever been bold enough to be big and public like that is going to be perfect. They're going to have sins, and you got to get over it. And what I dislike even more is the sort of sissy way we have nowadays of just going at only their sins and pretending like we have none. And so that's what you really see with the liberal agenda. And dis- dismissing all their virtues. Exactly. You dismiss all their virtues because you think if you really make this one PC thing that they were not doing, you really blow that up to gargantuan proportions, and that just somehow wins the debate for you. But it doesn't. And so I think that's exactly what Chesterton would say, too. He would just kind of laugh at them, and in his jolly way, would, and with his wit, would start to cut them down and say, look here, this is where you're hypocritical. Here's where you're heresies are and would leave them with nothing to say so we just need more chestertons hey what's that sound uh, airplanes going over indicating baggage check uh, what baggage because we didn't really read anything by chesterton except for what we've all already read but uh what kind of uh baggage do you guys bring to chesterton jake so i did not know gk chesterton was a person until i read some quote probably i think by john piper that I thought was really cool and probably discovered that Chesterton was a person then and didn't really get turned on to reading Chesterton until probably until Tim Bailey turned me on to Chesterton actually. So, and that would have been a long time ago. Did you fall in love with him when you read him? Absolutely. Yeah. I read Orthodoxy probably first and, uh, although maybe not, I don't know. I really can't remember what I read first or when I couldn't, I can say with some degree of certainty, it was at least 10 or 12 years ago. Read a lot of what he wrote. Fell in love with him. Felt like uh, felt like I was listening to The Sound of Sanity. Yep. <laughs> yep. Felt like I wasn't a crazy person after all. Somebody who was speaking common sense. And prophet what, of common sense, if ever there was one. What better feeling is there than listening to Sound of Sanity? Perhaps giving it five stars on iTunes. That's, that would be great yeah that's, that's great and giving it a a really nice review mm-hmm. yeah. my i don't have any particular baggage that i brought to chesterton i th- don't actually remember how i discovered him um i don't remember knowing who he was or him it feels like it feels to me like in reformed conservative or catholic circles he's more in vogue now i hear about him and see him on social media and stuff but Maybe 10 years ago or whatever, when I discovered him, I don't remember. It felt more like I was discovering it for myself. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that's just my perception of the reality that I have observed. I think I want to say I discovered him because I really liked C.S. Lewis, and I liked C.S. Lewis, specifically his style of writing essays. I liked Mere Christianity and some of that stuff, and I always somehow understood came to understand that uh, G.K. Chesterton was the grandfather of what Lewis was doing, was the guy that had done it better and bolder before Lewis ever did it. And so I read Orthodoxy, and I loved it. Read all the classics of Chesterton. Yeah, I like Chesterton. Brandon, your baggage? I think I've mentioned my friend before who... I was best friends with him and right before high school and going through high school. And a lot of it happened because we liked the same books. And he's the one who got me into that one funny book, Paralandra. Remember that? Paralandra? Not Paralandra. <laughs> Fantasties. Oh, Fantasties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that funny book oh, yeah. with the funny cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The George, so, uh, what's the guy's name? McDonald. Uh, George McDonald. Yeah, yeah. But he also got me into Chesterton. And I went the sort of strange backwards route. I didn't read Orthodoxy until I was in college. Really? What I read first and really loved, and I think it's because I loved Dickens so much. So Dickens, if people have picked up on this in the bookening, Dickens like defined my literary growing up before I discovered Tolstoy. And so Chesterton really loved Dickens, and a lot of his fiction is very Dickensian. And so that's actually how I first came through 
or came upon Chesterton was through his fiction. So I read The Napoleon of Notting Hill. I read The Club of Queer Trades. I read The Man Who Was Thursday and all these really short little Dover paperback books that I, I really, really loved them. They were strange and they were weird. The Ball on the Cross. And I see now that they're not the greatest things, but they're still fun in their own Chesterton way. That's That was my baggage with Chesterton. And I read The Napoleon of Notting Hill probably four or five times in high school. Really? Yeah. yeah. The, Club, the Club of Queer Trades a couple of times. It's just, just a, such a weird book. I never read the Father Brown series because I just never did like detective stories. I was gifted the Father Brown series by someone who knew that I liked Chesterton and that kind of yeah. stuff. I think it was a Christmas gift and um, I couldn't do it. I never could do uh, Father Brown. I don't know what my problem is. I do like some detective stories. I guess we know some of my detective baggage from the Agatha Christie stuff, but Father Brown just never did it for me for whatever reason. I don't know. I read one of his stories, and I had the vivid memory of a head being severed. Yeah, I remember that. I think I yeah, read that one, a too. Dismembered, a dismembered head. I think that's the first one. Yeah. We probably both tried to read the first Father Brown. Then story. I stopped. Yeah. But that is one thing I do remember about Chesterton is a lot of the imagery stays with you. Yeah. And especially the weird imagery. And he can be very surrealist in some ways. So I don't know if anybody knows the end of... The Man Who Was Thursday pretty much is a big bouncing head going down the street. It's the weirdest <laughs> ending to a book. But. Probably the most disappointing ending to a book that I've ever read, yeah. I must say. Man Who Was Thursday was a very disappointing book because the first two-thirds are an awesome adventure story. Really evocative, really suspenseful as I remember it. Really cool story. Just like exciting. And there's this gimmick that's kind of going through it. And I guess I won't spoil the gimmick in case anybody wants to read it. I'd recommend it. But... There's this thing that that keeps happening, and at first you think it's just going to happen a couple times, but then you start to realize towards the end of the book, oh, this is going to happen every time because Chesterton's making a point. Crap, he's making a point. And then you just feel deflated, and it's lame, and then it, and then it goes into this really surreal, ridiculous thing, and it's just like... I have never been more disappointed by a book that I was more excited to be reading than that book because it just ends clubbing you over the head with this whatever didactic point Chesterton wanted to make. But before that, it's this really fun story. It is um, fun. I felt betrayed by it. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> Actually. How old were you when you read it? I want to say I'm not sure exactly. Um, I was a young, a younger man, definitely. Like a teenager. yeah. So we had different responses. I was intrigued and felt like I just didn't understand what was going on and wanted to understand. I felt like there was some secret thing that I didn't know. Maybe you just got it. Yeah, like there was something that he was too clever for me to figure out. It'd be a fun, if we were going to do a Chesterton fiction book, I'd want, that'd be the one I'd want to do. It'd be yeah. a fun book. Maybe we'll do it one of these times. But um, and A lot of it has to do with the book is kind of has it, it has an air of mystery to it. And it goes back to what I was talking about with his political debates. And so it's all about the anarchists mm. who want to blow up England. And that's the, and there's a secret society. Is that the gimmick you weren't going to reveal? Uh, reveal away. Folks, uh. use the 15 forward button on your iPhone if you don't want to hear this. <laughs> well, it just, it the gimmick is that he thinks he's going into this club of anarchists who are going to blow up the world. But all the anarchists actually end up being a part of this club that is meant to stop the anarchists. And they have names like Monday and Tuesday. And then there's this leader named Sunday. And right. nobody really knows what the point is. And then at the end, you get this strange reveal that Sunday is kind of a deity, kind yeah. of not a deity. And well, it's this really fun, it's like, been a while since I've read it. story, and he keeps, he, he'll he hunt down a spy, and then they'll figure out that they're on the same yeah. side. And that happens once, and then it happens twice, and then it happens a third time, and then it happens, like, I want to say a fourth time or fifth yeah. time, and you suddenly realize, oh, this, I mean, I just, I, it was as deflating as watching one of those movies where it, it's all a dream or something like that, where it's like well, everything is invalid. Like I've been invested in this awesome secret agent thing and it could go any number of ways, but it goes to actually there's no bad guy. And Funny you said that, isn't it? Uh, Murder the man, on the Orient Express. The man who was Thursday, isn't it? Everybody a, did it. A nightmare? Yeah, I think it's called a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Murder on the Orient Express is cool because it's everybody did it. That's a status. Everybody did it's satisfying editing. Yeah. Nobody did it is not so Not sad. so much, maybe. I don't and know. And it was never a thing? Actually, it, the, yeah, it was never done because actually the thing that you've been investing in in this whole story was a false, you know, it's like it's it's like the equivalent of a, it was all a dream or something like that, which is my well, most Yeah, most of his fiction is very, 
it has a kind of almost allegorical twist to it. And so either you're along for the ride because you kind of, it's very similar to some of C.S. Lewis's works, especially right. with stuff like, what's that one that everybody likes? It's a little bit overrated. The Great Divorce. Mm. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys out oh, there. 100% overrated. But yep. um, I'm not afraid to say it. Great Divorce, not that great. Has a couple good images. That's it. If you like it, then you're not as smart as me. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, friends and no, listeners. Not. I'm not really kidding. He's not I, kidding. I'm not a big great divorce fan, but uh, it's not that great. It's got some really cool stuff, though. If you like it because you remember reading it like a while back and you remember it and you're like, it has this really cool thing. I agree with you probably, but it's got some cool concepts and ideas, yeah. which is kind of, is what you can in the end say about Chesterton. He's got some cool concepts and ideas in his fiction. And so and some of it's really funny. But the story is always secondary to the concept. And I have no patience for that whatsoever. That yeah. makes me mad when the story is sold out in favor of making a point, whether it's a Christian point or a satanic point or any point in between. I cannot stand it when the story does not seem to flow naturally out of itself. But instead, you, you know, you see it all the time in dumb liberal movies where the character does something that they would clearly never do because we've got to set up something so that we can make a point about the way things are today. You see it all the time. But I really, when Christians do it, it's arguably even more obnoxious because it's like, I agree with your point, but why'd you have to waste my time? I'm telling me this story that actually doesn't matter at all. It makes me mad. Stupid Chesterton. Yeah. Well, I guess parable and allegory, they have their place. Sure. And um, Chesterton's writing in parable and Hashtag allegory. Hashtag the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Bible. Hashtag the Bible. a great place for them. <laughs> I mean, Ch- Chesterton's doing more of that sort of work than... The problem, so like Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you hate Pilgrim's Progress? No, I like it fine because there's no point at Pilgrim's prog- Progress where I'm like... John Bunyan, you sold out the psychological realism of Christian because he actually wouldn't have gone to Vanity Fair. It's all allegory. It's all beautiful allegory, and I love it. The problem with Chesterton... It all actually makes psychological sense. And it actually makes psychological sense. The problem with Chesterton is that he's actually a talented enough writer to evoke image, to evoke place, to evoke character in such a way that you buy into it on a narrative level, and then... He comes along with his point, and he starts hitting you with it like a wiffle bat, and it's just annoying. Yeah, it's strange. Most of his fiction, it reads like it's just an illustration from one of his essays, and that's the way it reads. And he usually bookends even his stories with like a little chapter on why he's writing this in the first place. And then he, I wish I had brought the Napoleon of Notting Hill, but... There he's talking about this debate, like the um, it's kind of the cosmopolitan debate that we talked about with Kipling. Everybody wants to be so broad that they're losing the local. And so he's like, so let's use this story now to really think about what happens and how we can break through that. And then it just gets into this weird mysticism that a lot like The Man Who Was Thursday, you can see why he ended up being a Catholic and why he ended up defending things like the Inquisition. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to mention that, but... I wouldn't say that he actually defended the Inquisition exactly. He didn't. I wouldn't give... I would give the racism to his critics. I don't think I'd give the Inquisition. I will say he hated John Calvin. He's got a lot of funny... Without question. <laughs> he liked to throw rocks at John Calvin <laughs> he whenever hates. he could. <laughs> That's all throughout orthodoxy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the world we made. Um, yeah, he didn't defend... Ca- what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, folks. This is the world we made. Available uh, on iTunes today. <laughs> With the Inquisition, he was more... I would say... It's something that happened. It was a byproduct of something wonderful and good. Exactly. The the kind of evil, bad, expected byproduct that, given, given our sinful, broken world, if something as good as Christianity came along and it upset things the way it did, of course, things like the Inquisition would come along, is what he would say, which I think is actually a pretty good point. But be that as it may... Yeah. So parable and allegory. Parable and allegory. They're great in their place, which in is their place. not in my novels. Keep them out. There's something, and there is a reason that, I mean, Chesterton's parable and allegories, they had a place at the time for me, and they're fun to read, but they're, they do seem more like candy in relation to even orthodoxy, which is, I think, his greatest piece of writing, mm-hmm. or what's wrong with the world. Well, maybe this is isn't what's wrong with the world. It's a collection of his journalism, right? Well, Chesterton was a notorious. Here's some interesting stuff about Chesterton. Chesterton was a like many great wits and great what's the word for people that produce lots of stuff. Like many a prolific man, he was a notorious self cannibalizer, and he would take things and he would 
rearrange them and reuse them. And uh, I actually subscribed to, I think it's called American Chesterton Weekly or something. I, I used to get a Chesterton magazine from the Chesterton Society in the magazine because I do like Chesterton a lot um, in the mail. And they would have a lot of his essays. And it was amazing how many of those essays included some of the same lines, some of the same jokes, some of the same ideas that he would later reshape. And generally, by the time they make it into a book form, they're really perfect and amazing. Is A lot of his essays that he published, I think he had a column maybe called GK Weekly or something, I don't know. Some of his just weekly columns, you could see how he was kind of working out those ideas and sometimes they wouldn't quite be there and sometimes he wouldn't quite have the punchline. But you can see how, I don't remember why I went into all of that, but that's a thing. Why did I go on to all of it? With it? It was interesting. It was interesting, yeah. Oh, it was because Brandon asked if uh, What's Wrong With The World was just a uh, collection of journals. anthology oh. or if it was actually a formulated book. So I'm going to say it is a formulated book, but with Chesterton, that's kind of a, it's always the question because it's probably, probably he'd said all that stuff and in some cases said it in some of the same ways before. That's not a bad, you know, I, I think you're allowed to, you can cannibalize yourself. Uh, yeah, you not, can. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think it's actually kind of nice that he wasn't precious with stuff that he would just throw it out there and then come back to it, maybe reuse it. I think Chesterton would have been a genius of the internet age. He would have been able to keep yeah. a blog. He would have been great for Twitter. He was made for Twitter because you read any of his stuff and it's just like epigram, witticism, <laughs> short burst of awesome it's almost overwhelming it's almost of not you're almost like stop it just and i never say this about you almost anything. wonder if twitter would have kept him from writing books yeah he might this might have been a terrible era for him to live yeah. in because he could have just had a, a had an awesome podcast a tweet and, king yeah exactly but um yeah well if, if people or go ahead no i was just gonna say there is a reason though that like to f- finish I guess to kind of finish my baggage even Mm -hmm. with Chesterton, eventually he just dropped off for me and Mm -hmm. I didn't really read him much. I would go back to him occasionally if I wanted to laugh. But like I said, I didn't read orthodoxy until college. That's interesting. What really caused me to stop reading Chesterton was when I started reading Tolstoy. Hmm. And it's because I found like what fiction could really do. Right. And the power of a story when it wasn't just to either be funny or it was just a story. Right. And that was, uh, there's, yeah. That's interesting. That's very interesting. back at you next week with more Chesterton. Right, Brandon? That's right. Yeah, excited? I'm excited. We're going to talk about old Gilbert Sheets Chesterton? We're going to do it. All right. Yay! The beginning today was written and produced by Nathan Oberson. It was Twitter, Facebook. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeehaw. Support us on Patreon.com forward slash the bookening. 